0: Chapters eleven and twelve of the Avenger by E Phillips Oppenheim. This Librebox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter eleven False Sentiment With his nerves strung to their utmost point of tension, Wrayson walked homeward with the unseeing eyes and mechanical footsteps of a man unable as yet fully to collect his scattered senses. But for him the events of the evening were not yet over. He had no sooner turned the key in the latch of his door and entered his sitting-room than he became aware of the fact that he had a visitor. The air was fragrant with tobacco smoke. A man rose deliberately from the easy-chair and, throwing the ash from his cigarette into the fire, turned to greet him. Wrayson was so astonished that he could only gasp out his name. Heneage, he exclaimed. Heneage nodded. Of the two he was by far the more at his ease. "'I wanted to see you, Wrayson," he said, and I persuaded your housekeeper with some difficulty to let me wait for your arrival. Can you spare me a few minutes?' "'Of course,' Wrayson answered. "'Sit down. Will you have anything?' Heneage shook his head. "'Not just now, thanks.' Wrayson took off his hat and coat, threw them upon the table, and lit a cigarette. "'Well,' he said, "'what is it?' "'I have come,' Heneage said quietly, "'to offer you some very good advice.' you are run down and you look it you need a change i should recommend a sea voyage the longer the better they say that your paper is making a lot of money why not a voyage round the world what the devil do you mean wrayson asked heneage flicked off the ash from his cigarette and looked for a moment thoughtfully into the fire three weeks ago last thursday i think it was he began reflectively i had supper with austin at the green room club after the theatre he persuaded me rather against my will i remember for i was tired that night to go home with him and make a fourth at bridge austin's flat as you know is just below here on the Albert road wrayson stopped smoking the cigarette burned unheeded between his fingers his eyes were fixed upon his visitor go on he said we played five rubbers Heneage continued still looking into the fire it may have been six i left somewhere in the small hours of the morning and walked along the albert road on the unlit side of the street as i passed the corner here i saw hansom waiting before your door and you with somebody else standing on the pavement anything else wrayson demanded no heneage answered i saw you i saw the lady and i saw the cat it was a cold morning and i am not naturally a curious person i hurried on Rayson picked up the cigarette which had fallen from his fingers, and sat down. He could scarcely believe that this was not a dream, that it was indeed Stephen Hanage who sat opposite to him, Hanage, the Impenetrable, whose calm, measured words left no indication whatever as to his motive in making this amazing revelation. "'You are naturally wondering,' Hanage continued, why, having seen what I did see, I kept silence i follow your lead because i fancied in the first place that the presence of that young lady was a personal affair of your own and that she could have no possible connection with the tragedy itself you were evidently disposed to shield her and yourself at the same time i considered your attitude reasonable if a little dangerous no man is obliged to keep himself away in matters of this sort and i am no scandal-monger the situation however has undergone a change "'Rayson looked up quickly. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'Tonight,' Heneage said calmly, "'I recognized your nocturnal visitor with the Baroness de Sturm.' "'And what of that?' "'Rayson demanded.' "'Heneage, who was leaning back in his chair, looking into the fire with half-closed eyes, straightened himself and turned directly towards his companion. "'How much do you know about the Baroness de Sturm?' he asked. "'Nothing at all,' Rayson answered. "'I met her for the first time tonight." Hanage looked back into the fire. Ah, he murmured, I thought that it might be so. The young lady is perhaps an old friend? I cannot discuss her, Wrayson answered. I can only say that I will answer for her innocence as regards any complicity in the murder of Mars Bards. Hanage nodded sympathetically. Still, he remarked, the man was murdered. I suppose so, Wrayson admitted. And in a most mysterious manner, Hanage continued. "'You have gathered, I dare say, from your knowledge of me, that these affairs always interest me immensely. I am almost as great a crank as the colonel. I have been looking over this case a great deal, but I must confess that up to to-night I have not been able to see a gleam of daylight. I had dismissed the young lady from my mind. Now, however, I cannot do so.' "'Simply because you saw her with the Baroness de Sturm?' Wrayson asked they are living together heneage reminded him a condition which naturally makes for a certain amount of intimacy do you know anything against the baroness Wrayson demanded against her heneage repeated thoughtfully well that depends do you mean to insinuate that she is an adventuress Wrayson asked bluntly certainly not heneage replied she is a representative of one of the oldest families in europe a persona grata at the court of her country and an intimate friend of Queen Helena's. She is by no means an adventuress. Then why, Wrayson asked, should you attach such significance to the fact of her friendship with Miss Devaney? Because, Hanage remarked, lighting another cigarette, I happen to know that the Baroness is at present under the strictest police surveillance. Wrayson started. Hanage's first statement had reassured him. His later one was simply terrifying he stared at his visitor in dumb alarm. "'I came to know of this in rather a curious way,' Heneage continued. "'My information, in fact, came direct from her own country. "'She is being watched with extraordinary care, in connection with some affair of which I must confess that I know nothing. She is staying in London, a city which I happen to know she detests, without any ostensible reason. Of all parts she has chosen Battersay as a place of residence. It is her companion whom I saw leaving your flat at three o'clock on the morning of Barnes' murder. I am bound to say, Rayson, that I find these facts interesting. Why have you come to me? Rayson asked. What are you going to do about them? I am going to set myself to the task of solving the mystery of Morris Barnes' death, Hanage answered calmly. If I succeed, I am very much afraid that, directly or indirectly, the presence of miss devaney in the flats that night will become known and you advise me therefore wrayson remarked to take a voyage in plain words to clear out exactly heneage agreed wrayson threw his cigarette angrily into the fire what the devil business is it of yours he demanded heneage looked at him steadily wrayson he said i am sorry that you should use that tone with me i am no moralist I admit, frankly, that I take this matter up because my personal tastes prompt me to. But murder, however great the provocation, is an indefensible thing. I am not seeking to justify it, Wrayson declared. I am glad to hear that, Heneage answered. I cannot believe either that you would shield anyone, directly or indirectly, connected with such a crime. I am going to ask you, therefore, to tell me what Mr. Devaney was doing in these flats on that particular evening. Rayson was silent. In the light of what he had just been told about the Baroness he knew very well how Hanage would regard the truth. Of course she was innocent, innocent of the deed itself, and of all knowledge of it. But Hanage did not know her. He would be hard to convince, so Rayson shook his head. I can tell you nothing, he said. I admit frankly my sympathies are not with you. I should not say a word likely to bring even inconvenience upon Miss Devaney. "'Dare you tell me,' Hanage asked calmly, "'that her visit was to you?' "'No, I thought not,' he added, as Wrayson remained silent. "'I believe that the young lady could solve the mystery of Morris Barnes' death, if she chose.' Then Wrayson had an idea. At any rate, the disclosure would do no harm. "'Do you know who Miss Devaney is?' he asked. Hanage looked across at him quickly do you yes she is the eldest daughter of the colonel our colonel Hanage exclaimed wrayson nodded her real name is miss fitzmaurice he said her mother's name was devaney Hanage looked incredulous are you sure about this he asked absolutely wrayson answered i saw her picture the day of the garden party and i recognized her at once there is no doubt about it whatever she and the baroness were schoolfellows in brussels there is no mystery about their friendship at all heneage was thoughtful for several moments this is interesting he said at last but it does not of course affect the situation you mean that you will go on just the same wrayson demanded certainly and it rests with you to say whether you will be on my side or theirs heneage declared if you are on mine you will tell me what miss devaney was doing in these flats on that night of all others If you are on theirs, you will go and warn them that I am determined to solve the mystery of Morris Barnes' death, at all costs. "'I had no idea,' Grayson remarked, "'that you were ambitious to shine as an amateur policeman.' "'We all have our hobbies,' Heneage answered. "'Take the colonel, for instance, the most harmless, the most good-natured man who ever lived. Nothing in the world fascinates him so much as the details of a tragedy like this,' however gruesome they may be. I have seen him handle a murderer's knife as though he loved it. His favorite museum is the professional chamber of horrors in Scotland Yard. My own interests run in a slightly different direction. I like to look at an affair of this sort as a chess problem, and to set myself to solve it. I like to make a silent study of all characters around, to search for motives and dissect evidence. Human nature has its secrets, and very wonderful secrets, too i once wrayson said thoughtfully saw a man tracked down by bloodhounds my sympathies were with the man heneage nodded your view of life he remarked was always a sentimental one no correct view wrayson declared can ignore sentiment granted but it must be true sentiment not false heneage said this sentiment which interferes with justice is false sentiment justice is altogether an arbitrary a relative phrase wrayson declared i know no more about the case of morris barnes than you do i knew the man by sight and repute than i knew the manner of his life and it seems to me a likely thing that there is more human justice about his death than in punishing the person who compassed it there are cases of that sort Heneage admitted that is the advantage of being an amateur like myself my discoveries if i make any are my own "'I am not bound to publish them.' Wrayson smiled a little bitterly. "'You would be less than human if you didn't,' he said. Carnage rose to his feet and began putting on his coat. Wrayson remained in his seat without offering to help him. "'So I may take it, I suppose,' he said as he moved towards the door. "'That my visit to you is a failure. "'I have not the slightest idea of running away, if that is what you mean,' Wrayson answered. "'I am obliged to you for your warning.' but what I did I am prepared to stand by.' "'I am sorry,' Hinaj answered. "'Good-night.' End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Tidings from the Cape Wrayson paused for a moment in his work to answer the telephone which stood upon his table. "'What is it?' he asked sharply. His manager spoke to him from the offices below. "'Sorry to disturb you, sir, but there is a young man here who won't go away without seeing you. His name is Barnes, and he says that he has just arrived from South Africa.' It was a busy morning with Rayson, for in an hour or so the paper went to press, but he did not hesitate for a moment. "'I will see him,' he declared. "'Bring him up yourself.' Rayson laid down the telephone. Morris Barnes had come from South Africa. It was a common name enough, and yet from the first he was sure that this was some relative. What was the object of his visit? The ideas chased one another through his brain. Was he, too, an Avenger? There was a knock at the door and the clerk from downstairs ushered in his visitor. Rayson could scarcely repress a start. It was a younger edition of Morris Barnes who stood there, with an ingratiating smile upon his pale face, a trifle more Semitic in appearance, perhaps but in other respects the lightness was almost startling. It extended even to the clothes. for Wrayson recognized with a start a purple and white tie of particularly loud pattern. The cut of his coat, the glossiness of his hat and boots, too, were all strikingly reminiscent of the dead man. His visitor was becoming nervous under Wrayson's close scrutiny. His manner betrayed a curious mixture of diffidence and assurance he seemed over-anxious to create a favourable impression. "'I took the liberty of coming to see you, Mr. Rayson,' he said, twisting his hat round in his hand. "'My name is Barnes, Sidney Barnes. Mars Barnes was my brother.' Rayson pointed to a chair into which his visitor subsided with exaggerated expressions of gratitude. He had very small black eyes set very close together, and he blinked continually. The more Rayson studied him, the less prepossessing he found him. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Barnes?' he asked quietly. "'I have just come from Cape Town,' the young man said. "'Such a shock it was to me, about my poor brother. Oh, such a shock!' "'How did you hear about it?' Grayson asked. "Uh, "'Just a newspaper. I read an account of it all. It did give me a turn, and no mistake. Directly I'd finished, I went and booked my passage on the Dunatar Castle. I had a very fair berth over there. Two quit a week, but I felt I must come home at once. Fact is, he continued, looking down at his trousers, I had no time to get my own togs together. I was so anxious, you see. That's why I'm wearing some of poor Morris's. Are you the only relative? Wrayson asked. On my Sam I am, the other answered with emphasis. We hadn't a relation in the world. Father and mother died ten years ago, and Morris and I were the only two anything that poor morris possessed belongs to me sure there's no one else to claim a farthing's worth you must know that yourself mr wrayson eh if as you say you are the only relative your brother's effects of course belong to you wrayson answered it's a sure thing the young man declared i've been to the landlord of the flat and he gave me up the keys at once there's only one quarter's rent owing pretty stiff though isn't it fifty pounds Your brother's was a furnished flat, I believe, Rayson answered. That makes a difference, of course. The young man's face fell. Then the furniture wasn't his, he remarked. Rayson shook his head. No, the furniture belongs to the landlord. There will be an inventory, of course, and you will be able to find out if anything was your brother's. It was obvious that Mr. Sidney Barnes had not yet as entered upon the purpose of his visit. He fidgeted for a moment or two with his hat, and looked up at Rayson, only to look nervously away again. To set him more at ease, Wrayson lit a cigarette, and passed the box over. "'Thank you, Mr. Wrayson," Thank you, sir,' his visitor exclaimed. "'You see I'm a smoker,' he added, holding up his yellow-stained forefinger. "'That is, I smoke when I can afford to. Things have been pretty dicky out in South Africa lately, you know. Terrible hard it has been to make a living.' "'Your brother was supposed to have done pretty well out there,' Wrayson remarked more for the sake of keeping the conversation alive than anything the effect of his words however was electrical mr sidney barnes leaned over from his chair and his little black eyes twinkled like polished beads mr wrayson he declared a week before he sailed for england morris was on his uppers he was caught in johannesburg when the war broke out and he had to stay there when he turned up in cape town again his own mother wouldn't have known him he was in rags he'd come down on a freight he hadn't a scrap of luggage or a copper to his name that was mars when he came to me in cape town Wrayson was listening attentively he almost feared to let his visitor see how interested he was he was fair done in the young man declared he never had the pluck of a chicken and the night he found me in cape town he cried like a baby he would lost everything he said it was no use staying in the country any longer he was wild to get back to England. And yet, do you know, sir, all the time I had the idea that he was keeping something back from me. And he was, he was, too, the—' He stopped short. The vindictiveness of his countenance supplied the epithet. "'You'll excuse me if I'm a bit excited, Mr. Rayson,' he continued. "'I'll leave you to judge how I've been served when you hear all.' He got over me, and I lent him nearly half of my savings, and he started back to England.' He took this flat at two hundred pounds a year the very week he got back, and he's lived from what I can hear like a lord ever since. Would you believe this, sir? He sent back the money he borrowed from me a quid at a time, and wrote me to say he was saving it with great difficulty out of his salary of three pounds a week. When he paid back the lot, I never heard another line from him. I was doing rotten myself, and he knew well enough that I should have been over first steamer if I'd known about his two hundred a year flat and all the rest of it. What do you think of my brother, sir, eh? What do you think of him? Treated me nicely, didn't he? Nine pounds ten was what I lent him, and nine pounds ten was all I had back, and here he was living like a duke, and lying to me about his three pounds a week, and there I was, hawkerin' groceries on a barrel, selling sham diamonds, any bloomin' thing to get a mouthful to eat. Nice sort of a brother, that, eh? What? Wrayson repressed an inclination to smile. There was something grimly humorous about his visitor's indignation. "'You must remember,' he said, "'that your brother is dead, and that his death itself was a terrible one. Besides, even if you have had to wait for a little time, you are his heir now.' The young man was breathing hard. The perspiration stood out in little beads upon his forehead. He showed his teeth a little. He was becoming more and more unpleasant to look upon as his excitement increased. Look here, Mr. Wrayson," he exclaimed. I'm coming to that. I've been through his things, clothes. I never saw such a collection. All from a West End tailor, too. And boots, patent with white tops, pumps, everything slap up. Heaven knows what he must have spent upon his clothes. Bills from restaurants, too. Why, he seems to have thought nothing of spending a quid or two on a dinner or supper. Photographs of ladies, little notes, asking him to tea. Why, between you and me, Mr. Wrayson, sir, he was living like a prince. And look here. He rose to his feet and planked down a bank book on the desk in front of Wrayson. Look here, sir, he declared. Every three months within a day or two, cash five hundred pounds. Here you are, here's the last. March twenty seventh. Cash five hundred pounds. Look back, january first. By cash five hundred pounds. October two, cash five hundred pounds. There you are, right back to the very day he arrived in England. And he left South Africa with ten bob of mine in his pocket, after he paid his passage. And from what I can hear, he never did a day's work after he landed. And me over there working thirteen or fourteen hours a day, and half the time stony broke. There's a brother for you. Cain was a fool to him, but you must remember that. After all, you are going to reap the benefit of it now. Grayson remarked. Ah, but am I? The young man exclaimed fiercely. That's what I want to know look here i've been through every letter and every scrap of paper i can find i've been to the bank and to his few pals and strike me dead if i can find where that five hundred pounds came from every three months it was in gold always he must have gone and changed it somewhere five hundred golden sovereigns every three months and i can't find where they came from have you been to a solicitor wrayson asked not yet the young man answered i don't see what good he'll be when i do Morris was always one of the close sort, and I can't fancy him spending much over lawyers. "'What made you come to me?' Grayson inquired. "'Well, the caretaker at the flat told me that you and Morris used to speak now and then, and I'm trying everyone. I'm afraid he wasn't classy enough for you to have held up with, but I thought he might have let something slip, perhaps.' Grayson shook his head. "'He never spoke to me of his affairs,' he said. He always seemed to have plenty of money, though. "'Doesn't a bank book prove it?' the young man exclaimed excitedly. "'Everyone who knew anything about him says the same. There was I, half-starved in Cape Town, and here was he spending two thousand a year. Beast he was! I'll find out where it came from if it takes me a lifetime.' Wrayson leaned back in his chair. Nothing since the events of that night itself had appealed to him more than the coming of this young man and his strange story. "'I am sorry that I have no information to give you,' he said. "'On the other hand, if I can help you in any other way, I shall be very glad.' "'What should you advise me to do?' the young man asked. "'I should like to think the matter over carefully,' Wrayson answered. "'What are your engagements for today? Can you lunch with me?' "'I have no engagements,' his visitor answered eagerly. "'When and what time?' Wrayson repressed a smile. "'I shall be ready in twenty minutes,' he answered. We will go out together if you don't mind waiting. I'm on, Mr Sidney Barnes declared, crossing his legs. Don't you hurry on my account I'll wait as long as you like. End of chapter twelve recording by Tom com